0: Good morning, friends. My name is Justin, and I am privileged to serve as the pastor of leadership and spiritual formation here at Christ City Church. And I'm grateful that you've decided to join us online today, and I hope you will consider joining us in person at Minor Elementary very soon on September 26th. In just a couple of weeks, we will begin regathering in the Minor Cafeteria, which has been our home since we were planted in this neighborhood eight years ago. And we want to invite you to join us as long as you're comfortable doing so. Uh, we'll be sharing more details about precisely what that will look like, COVID protocols, and more in the coming week. So be on the lookout for that in the scoop. Uh, we are so grateful to our friends at Minor for opening the doors for us again, and we ask for your prayers And you're volunteering as we prepare to return to in-person services and as we figure out all of the logistics of running services both live and online for those who cannot or are not able or are not comfortable yet to join us in person. And we are grateful to God for sustaining us over these last long months. This weekend uh, marked 20 years since the historic and awful events of 9-11 20 years ago I was 18 a second-year university student in London and so for me it was a Tuesday afternoon around 1 p.m. I was home with my flatmate and a friend after having taken classes that morning and we, we had a, a small box TV it sat on a small stool that sat in the living room that also passed from my bedroom and for some reason we had the TV on at that time we were watching when the second plane hit and when the towers collapsed. I remember it so vividly, as I'm sure many of you do as well. Twenty years on, it's strange to think of the, the tragedy and the scope of the loss that day, though it remains so visceral for so many. The countless stories of those who lost their lives and those they left behind. Threads of life cut too soon, creating gashes in the tapestry of our common humanity. A reminder that misdirected fear and hatred so easily caused so much devastation. I think of the self-sacrifice and the goodness and the heroism on display that day of first responders, medical personnel, aid workers, journalists, civilians on a hijacked plane, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. The instincts that sought to save and to serve others, to love neighbor even at cost to themselves. And I'm grateful. But I also think of the fearful and misdirected responses to 9-11. Of Balbir Bodhi Singh, a Sikh American who was murdered just four days after 9-11. Yet another victim of the prejudice and xenophobia that has always festered in the American story. I lament the the violence and war that has dominated the last two decades. I grieve the costs in billions of misspent dollars, as well as, more importantly, the thousands of stolen human lives and the devastating traumas inflicted, the cycles of violence perpetuated. I mourn the injustices and evil perpetrated apparently in the name of our security and safety. As I said, I'm I'm so grateful for those who sought and still seek to build a better, more just, and peaceable world for all. But as Christians, our, our fruit and our faithfulness are shown in our intentions and in our impact, in what we seek and in how we seek those things. We do not always have a choice in what happens to us. As individuals, as a community, as a country, or even as a world, but we always have a choice in how we respond now. I keep in the forefront of my mind the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian dissident who wrote some 50 years ago, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So let us name good and evil outside of us. Let us fight for the good and oppose the evil. But may we always do so with the humility that acknowledges we do not see as clearly as we think we do. And that the equally vital task is to name the good and evil inside of us. To fight for the good and oppose the evil inside of us. May we as followers of Jesus ever and always be alert and attentive to the calling and conviction of the Holy Spirit to seek redemption and restoration over revenge, and to seek life and love and joy and justice, especially for the least of these. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that God longs to bring to bear on all creation, and this is my prayer and my hope on this anniversary weekend of 9-11. As we pray every week, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, On earth as in heaven. Amen. Today we continue our three-week mini-series entitled, In the Meantime, where we've been exploring how to live in the liminal spaces, the in-between places, poking at the paradoxes that define our human existence and experience, that it describes so much of where we are in the meantime, between the virus and the vaccine and the variant with schools and workplaces and churches reopening and regathering, and then, in an increasing number of cases, shutting back down again. With all the anxiety and uncertainty, with the disappointed hopes, with the exhaustion of ever-present emergency and being ever on high alert, and then somehow, some way, trying to figure out how to hold and treasure the moments of joy when they do come an unexpected phone conversation with an old friend, a new relationship, twins arriving safely, a professional step up, a better living situation, healthier rhythms, whatever it has been for you in this season, I hope you have been able to recognize and receive the goodness of God. In a sense, we're always in the meantime. We're always in some transition of some kind, always experiencing disruption or disappointment of some kind, there is no perfect setting on which we can cruise through our years on this pale blue dot. Uh, and I've been feeling all of that as, as I have returned to full-time work these last couple of, of weeks after a couple of months of paternity leave this summer. And I've been feeling that as we prepare to restart in-person gatherings at Minor Elementary after more than a year and a half of being solely online. I've been feeling that as I re-engage atrophied work and relational and emotional muscles and discover that they are in worse shape than I had ever thought. The baseline of tiredness in my soul and in my bones has risen over the last year and a half, and I have felt so acutely my desperate need for God, though I must confess that that need for God hasn't always driven me to God, but we'll get to that. Over these last couple of weeks, as I considered what my offering to this series would be, God brought me to Psalm 23. It has been what I needed for this season. And perhaps there may be a word or a seed or a pearl for you, too. This psalm was written by David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And given the tone of the poem, we might think that David, who was once a shepherd boy himself, he wrote this as he watched over his own flock of sheep as they grazed peacefully in a pastoral setting in a lush meadow of green grass by a quiet stream, the breeze off the Mediterranean, tussling his hair as he composed what would become one of the most famous songs of all time. But according to tradition, David wrote this psalm while he was fleeing from King Saul. Someone he had looked up to and served faithfully, and yet whose jealousy and insecurity had driven him to a murderous frenzy. David had no place to call home. He couldn't stay in one place for too long for fear that Saul would find him and kill him. David was on the run. He was unsettled. That's when he wrote this psalm. And it makes such a difference to me that that was the context in which David wrote Psalm 23. Because that is so often the dynamic of life. Where it seems nothing is guaranteed but trouble and unsettledness. Where we don't know what may lie ahead. Where we don't know what may bring us down. Though we feel the encroaching enemies, real or figurative, those that threaten to overwhelm us. Anxiety and despair, financial trouble, the weight of living in a world that does not acknowledge or affirm our worth or value, and so much misdirected fear and hatred from those who do not share every aspect of our identity, not even to name a global pandemic that has claimed many of those whom we love, and continues to disrupt and destabilize the world as we know it, and even our dreams of the world as we hope it could be. And to be quite honest, this last year and a half has shown us some of the disappointing depths of human depravity. And it is in this kind of environment that David wrote Psalm 23. And so perhaps Psalm 23 has more to offer us now than it might in times of rest and ease. Let me offer then some words that God has been offering me lately. The Lord is my shepherd is how the psalm begins, and so we add shepherd to the list of metaphors that help us understand a little bit more of who our great and infinite God is, and as we walk through the six short verses of this psalm, we unpack this together, this metaphor, how, how is God a shepherd? I lack nothing, the Lord is my provider. He lets me rest in grassy meadows, He leads me to restful waters, He keeps me alive, the Lord. Is my sustainer. He guides me in right paths for the sake of his good name. The Lord is my companion. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. The Lord is my defender. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. The Lord is my host and my justifier you bathe my head in oil my cup is so full it spills over the Lord is the giver of blessings yes goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life the Lord is for me I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live the Lord is my home we could spend weeks Months and even the rest of our lives, unpacking each of those lines, each of those characteristics, each of those ways Yahweh God shepherds us. Maybe what God has for you today is. One of those lines, one of those metaphors, maybe one of them resonated with you in a particular way. Maybe you should take that line and write it down every morning when you wake up and take it with you wherever you go. Maybe the Holy Spirit has given you your treasure for this week and you can tune out and sign off for the rest of the service. But stick with me just in case there's more. The thing is, the Lord is my shepherd was not confined to what actual shepherds did. In that day and in that culture, shepherd was a term used also for gods and kings, for rulers and leaders of people. Kings of Israel were referred to as shepherds, and not all of them were good. The Old Testament prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk of shepherds who destroy and devour the Lord's sheep. In other Old Testament passages, Yahweh, God, is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, it says in Psalm 77. Or then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock, Psalm 78. Or give ear, O shepherd of Israel, Psalm 80. And so this psalm, Psalm 23, it draws on all of that cultural imagery and history as well. When David sings, the Lord is my shepherd, it is an admission of trust and confidence. And it is also a pledge of allegiance. The Lord is my leader, my king, the one I follow and obey. Old Testament scholar John Goldingay plays a, a simple trick of, of reframing by, in, in a Yoda-like move, reshuffling the opening words of the psalm. From the Lord is my shepherd, which we're probably very used to, to my shepherd is the Lord. My shepherd is the Lord, from which the question presents itself to us and for us, who is your shepherd? Who is your shepherd? Who or what do you rely on to provide for you, to keep you alive, to accompany you, to protect you, to feed you and nourish you, to bless you and be for you? Who or what do you turn to when you want to feel at home? Is it your own hard work? Is it a particular substance or habit? Is it a person? The significant other or a family member or a friend? Is it a particular myth or dream or motivating narrative that when you get to the next accomplishment or achievement or life goal or salary level or when you do X, Y, or Z or when you can make up for or cover up the shortcomings and scars you picked up, the brokenness or baggage you carry, then you will know peace and rest and assurance and provision. Who is your shepherd my shepherd is the lord that's the answer i hope i give with my lips and with my life but i know it is not the case all too often i am not always able to speak the words of this psalm with conviction or confidence and sometimes my actions prove my words false sometimes i pray the words of this psalm as a prayer lord i am not there but I want to be there. I wonder what David's mindset was when he wrote these words. You know, we know from other Psalms that you know, David was not afraid to voice to God whatever he was feeling. Right? Whether he was on the mountaintops of confident faith and trust or in the valleys of fear and despair and disappointment. Psalm 13, how long will you forget me, Lord? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 56, have mercy on me because I'm being trampled by my enemies. And so what was David feeling when he wrote these words in Psalm 23? Was he full of confidence and unshakable faith? even in the midst of trial and tribulation, speaking out affirmations and assurances of God's goodness? Or was he not quite sure? Was he expressing to God where he hoped to be but wasn't fully or wasn't yet? Perhaps it was both and everything in between. The thing I love about songs is that they come from one person's lips or life, and they can take on any number of shapes and sounds and meanings for someone else. I don't know all of the stories or motivations behind my favorite songs. I know some of them, parts of them, pieces of them. But the gift of those songs from those songwriters is that they can become mine too. They can become something for me too. And the thing about the Psalms is that these words that we find in the Bible, including Psalm 23, a song written by one man at a particularly fraught and fragile moment of his life, they made their way into the songbook of a nation. See, the Psalms were sung collectively, corporately, together by the people of Israel. People would have sung these words together. Now, I've been a worship leader for 20 years. I know how critical and picky people can be when it comes to music. I don't like this worship leader. I don't jive with the style. I don't like the song. I'm just not feeling it. So I'm not going to engage. And while the people of ancient Israel were not brought up in the largely individualistic consumeristic society of our day, I can still imagine the scene when, you know, Psalm 23 came back up in the rotation. Some of the people would be on a spiritual high. Yes, the Lord is my shepherd. I do not like anything. Praise the Lord. Others there might be singing those words even though they were expressing a longing and not an experienced reality in that moment. Others still might be thinking, I don't like this song, leader. I don't like this psalm. We sing it all the time. And I'm not even feeling it. But worship, not simply being swept up in our emotions, being able to express the very thing we are feeling in the moment, although it can be, true worship is an act of the will. It's a conscious and intentional decision to be present to God, to engage our hearts and our minds and our lips and our lives in actions that honor God, that reflect the goodness of God, even and especially to those around us, even when the situation is not to our preference. There is a reason, Jesus says, the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments, they're like one another. The true, deep power of a community of faith is best expressed when those who are on the spiritual high recognize that there are those who may not be there and sing in solidarity with those who are praying. And when those who are praying or just mouthing the words move out of themselves to celebrate with those who are celebrating, and when those who are leaning into their personal inclinations or preferences or cynicism choose to risk something on behalf of someone else, that is when we intertwine our threads, our well-being, our lives with one another's. That is when we become part of something bigger than ourselves, when we become part of one another and still, and still, and still. One of the things that makes this psalm so powerful is that it expresses deep and grounding and stabilizing truths about our God and therefore about our reality simply and succinctly. It's not hard to memorize Psalm 23. It's just six verses, 116 words in the Common English Bible. It takes about a minute to recite it. And chiseled into the structure of the psalm itself is this beautiful reminder. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, is mentioned twice in Psalm 23. In the first line and the last line. Book ends. As if to remind us, the listeners, the singers, that all of reality is found within the infinity of God that there is nothing beyond my shepherd, that there is nothing greater than my shepherd, that there is nothing that can overcome my shepherd. Every life and every sphere of every life is lived completely in the presence of the one true God. And right at the heart of the psalm, in verses 4 and 5, there is a shift from talking about God to talking to God. It's no longer Yahweh Adonai the Lord, it is you. And it is in the darkest valley that this shift takes place. It takes place in the face of danger and death. It takes place when David is being pursued by someone who literally wants to kill him. That's when the rubber hits the road. That's when our faith is proven. When your back is against the wall, who is your shepherd? Friends, faith and belief are not about what statements we intellectually agree with. They are about what we build our lives on about what we trust to be real and how we live accordingly. How you live your life reveals what you believe. How you spend your time and your money reveals what you believe. How you treat your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, your friends, your enemies, those who can pay nothing back to you, it reveals what you believe. How and where and for whom you show up reveals what you believe. Who you turn to in times of need reveals what you believe, reveals who Your shepherd really is. The words of Psalm 23, 4, the expression of faith, of belief, of trust in God in the darkest valley is this. You are with me. Now, one of the most common sayings of God in all of Scripture, usually paired with fear not, is I am with you. That's the divine promise. That's the word of salvation to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Genesis, to Moses and Joshua as they led the people of Israel to the promised land, to the people of Israel and Judah through the prophets, to all of humanity in the person of Jesus, named Emmanuel, God with us, the Good Shepherd, and then revealed through Jesus to us by his Spirit, the divine promise. Of presence. The faith always requires a response on our part to the activity and reality of God. As one scholar writes, it is between those two dynamics, the divine promise of I am with you and the response of faith of you are with me, that the currents of the life of faith ebb and flow. In the, ones of one of my, in the words of one of my favorite theologians, philosopher Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort, As opposed to earning. We are invited, challenged even, to take hold of the divine promise of I am with you and to make it our own by responding in faith to God, you are with me. My shepherd is Yahweh. That shepherd, our God, is revealed most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ who claimed that metaphor for himself. He knew what he was saying when he said, I am the good shepherd And he backed it up with his life and his death and his resurrection. And again, the divine requires a response. Just as Jesus did with James and John in their boats, he comes to us and he says, now you come and follow me. Just as Jesus did with the woman caught in adultery, he shows us the grace and mercy of God and tells us, go and sin no more. Just as Jesus did with corrupt little Zacchaeus, the tax collector, up in the tree. We are seen by Jesus, who in turn waits to see what our acts of repentance and reparation will look like. And just as Jesus did with Peter on the Lake of Galilee, he shows up during a storm and he says, Come walk to me on the water. Take a risk. Take a step of faith. Put your words in action. Let your intellectual statements become prayers of trust. Let your words of love become deeds and so become true. And what that precise act of faith is for you, I cannot say. Each of us is dealing with different decision points, wrestling with different worries. Maybe it's to do with your work life or a relationship or something to do with school or even this church community. Maybe your response is to take a bold step in a particular direction with no guarantees that things will work out, only the discernment that God is leading you that way and with the declaration that the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe your response is to whisper the words of Psalm 23 as a prayer. I'm not there, but I want to be. Lord, help my unbelief. In the words of a poem I love written by English pastor Pete Gregg, I believe that even my feeble, whispered, faithless prayer invokes a thunderous, resounding, bone-shaking great amen from countless angels, from heroes of the faith, from Christ Himself. The promise of Psalm 23 is that God is with us every stumbling step of the journey, even if we don't know where we are going. And even as we wait for and long for and yearn for the quiet waters and the lush meadows for a banquet and bottomless beverages for our souls and our society to be whole and at peace, may we learn to see the glimpses and the good of the goodness and glory of God in our stories now and all around us in the meantime. Amen.